This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The number of homes and other buildings at risk from natural hazards in the U.S. is on the rise. On today's show, we learn why the risk factor is getting worse. Plus, we hear how one northern Colorado community is dealing with its growing demand for water. The cost per acre foot of conservation is significantly less expensive than new supply. Those stories and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. As crews continue search and rescue efforts at the site of a tragic building collapse in Surfside, Florida, many are wondering what caused the catastrophic event. It will likely take weeks, months, or even years before that can be determined. One factor that experts will certainly be looking at is whether flooding due to rising water levels or other ongoing climate impacts could have played a role. A new study from the University of Colorado Boulder shows that more than half of buildings in the U.S. are at risk from natural hazards. To learn more about this risk, KUNC's Ray Solomon spoke with the study's lead author, Virginia Iglesias. 57% of buildings exposed to risk from natural hazards. That sounds like a lot of buildings on the chopping block, but what exactly does it mean to be exposed to natural hazard risk? So I think that we need to talk a little bit about what we mean by risk, because there are lots of definitions of risk. To us, risk of exposure to a natural hazard is that there's a high probability of damage to a structure or a building from a natural event. What natural events? We looked at five, which are the most damaging in the country. And those are wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, and floods. So if we consider this definition of of risk, it has two aspects. One is the physical side, and the other is the social part of it. In terms of its physical side, if a natural hazard is going to destroy something, it needs to be frequent, it needs to be large, it needs to cover a large area. So climate change is altering that. We know that extreme events are more frequent and larger and more intense just because of changes in climate. The other aspect of the problem is where we put our buildings. If there's a huge flood, but there are no homes, no homes get destroyed. That's what we mean by exposure. And that's the part of the problem that we try to tackle in this paper. So from now on, we're going to be saying that risk increased because of development. Just to make the problem simpler and to be able to answer questions, we left aside climate change. Not because it was, it's not important. It is. It's critical and it's changing risk. It was only because we needed to make the problem simpler in order to answer questions. If you set that aside, how can you parse out how much of this risk exposure is due to climate change versus how much is driven by development? We looked at the past. We made maps of hazard probability. What is the probability? It's basically the number of times that an event has happened over a very long period of time. Imagine that we have a map and we show areas of high hazard probability in red, low hazard probabilities in yellow. We only focus on the very dark red. And that's how we isolated. We kept the natural side of the equation constant. When you talk about risk, you talk about 
buildings being damaged. What does that damage look like? Are we talking about destruction? Are we talking about like a few shingles falling off? That's a very good question. And the answer is it depends. So far, I said that when we think about risk, there are two factors to consider. It's actually three. One, as we were saying, is going to be how intense the hazard is. The second one, how many buildings we have. And the third one is going to be what they are made of or how vulnerable they are. We only counted buildings in areas where hazards were likely to happen. How much damage are they going to cause? It's going to depend on how intense the event is and what our buildings are made of. So are there particular areas of the country that are at higher risk from these natural hazards than others? That depends on the hazard. For some hazards, they are very nicely defined. For example, hurricanes happen along the Gulf and Atlantic coast. Earthquakes are more likely along the Pacific coast. Tornadoes cover the tornado alley. Then when it comes to floods and fires, the hotspots are a little bit more diffuse. So fire, uh, floods are going to follow the big rivers. For instance, the Mississippi is a clear hotspot. For fires, it gets a little bit more complicated. So if you ask me to draw the map, I would just draw the boundaries of the map and little dots all over the place that would represent uh, hazard hotspots. And these little dots would be much more clustering the west of the country. Lots of clusters in California. Here in Colorado, we have little clusters along the front range, northwest of the state. But there's hazard of fires all over the country. So now we know, what do we do about it? What do you want people to take away from this study? What I don't want is to create panic because 57% of structures, and by structures, we mean homes, schools, hospitals. That's a very large number. What I really want to create is awareness. I would like policymakers, land managers, homeowners to know if they are building or if their homes are at risk. And with that, they can make informed decisions. Then, if we are buying a home or moving or renting, lots of factors are going to get into consideration. Um, some is going to be, are there good schools? Are there recreation opportunities? Can I, can I afford to live in that area? What I would like to see happen is that we also consider, is this a hazardous area? And then we can decide. We may be okay with that level of exposure, but I would like us all to know that it's out there. Yeah, being okay with that level of exposure. Are, are you okay with it? Does your research impact how you think about where you personally choose to live? To some extent. I'm among those people. I, I moved to Colorado because of my job. I got a job at the university. I moved here. I love it. I also like to ski and climb in the mountains. So it's a perfect place for me to live. I live in the wildland urban interface, so I know that I'm exposed to fires. I'm okay with that risk, and at the same time, I try to keep myself informed. I know that we can take action. I know that if I decide to build something, I know that I can use fire-resistant materials. 
I know that I can manage fuel around my home to make fires less likely to spread and burn my home. And then if there's a fire, I try to know what to do. Like, what do I do? How do I protect my life? How do I protect my family? I feel that that's about it. It's a personal decision. We all have different levels of comfort when it comes to risk. And I feel it needs to be that way. Respect each other's comfort level, but make sure that we're making informed decisions. Virginia Iglesias, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Small towns along Colorado's Front Range are booming, but they often don't have enough water to serve their new residents and businesses. Buying more water is expensive. As Jody Peterson reports, some communities are finding that it's cheaper to get water by conserving it instead. On the cottonwood-lined main street of Severance, Colorado, morning birdsong fills the air. It's soon drowned out, though, by the roar of a backhoe. This former farm town is replacing crumbling old water lines that serve a rapidly growing population. Severance has doubled in size over the last five years, as home buyers, thwarted by soaring prices in Denver and Fort Collins, look for more affordable options. Definitely have seen a lot of growth. That's Severance's community development director, Mitch Nelson. He says one of the biggest challenges his town faces is securing enough water for continued growth. That wasn't something Severance had to worry about just a decade ago. Now, as drought strains the state and tens of thousands of newcomers move to the busy front range each year, towns like Severance are thinking about growth and water usage in ways that they never have before. In the past, the town's future goals from a land use standpoint wasn't discussed alongside water conservation and Severance, so that was the first step. But figuring out where this new water will come from is another question. While large cities on the Front Range have senior water rights and long-established supplies, small towns like Severance usually do not. Severance relies on the Colorado Big Thompson Project, which delivers water from the headwaters of the Colorado River to more than a million Front Range residents each year. However, one unit of that water is now approaching $65,000, nearly 10 times what it cost just a decade ago, thanks to higher demand and shrinking supplies from decades of drought. Now, towns are finding a way to avoid buying so much of that expensive water, doubling down on conservation. So for communities like Severance, the cost per acre foot of conservation is significantly less expensive than new supply. That's Lindsay Rogers, the Colorado Basin Program Manager for the Water Now Alliance. But conservation alone can't meet all of a town's future water needs, says Mitch Nelson, Severance's community development director. You have to do both. You have to acquire the potable water because that is what people used to drink and reduce the usage of water for irrigation. That reduction in irrigation water use is mostly going to happen in new developments, as towns like Severance work to integrate water planning into their land use planning for the future. Making growth water smart from the start provides more bang for the buck, says Aaron Rugland, program manager at the Arizona-based Babbitt Center for Land and Water Policy. So that developments are made to be more water efficient rather than trying to incentivize individual homeowners, businesses to reduce their water use. In January, the town approved a comprehensive plan that incorporates conservation throughout. It identifies opportunities like making landscaping more water efficient and creating a fee structure to encourage conservation. Town core is intended to be, you know, mixed-use housing, 
higher densities, commercial, that brown area is where we've seen. Back in Severance, Mitch Nelson describes a map hanging on his office wall that shows future growth areas. Other small front range towns have created similar maps and plans. They've implemented water efficiency improvements and passed conservation ordinances. And they've also bought out farms to use the water rights for more subdivisions. Severance, says Nelson, is trying to avoid that. I think the goal is just to try and maintain those historic uses and not dry this area up. These small front range towns will keep growing for the foreseeable future. But planning now for water conservation can take the pressure off, allowing towns to not have to compete quite so hard for their slice of the region's limited water supply. I'm Jody Peterson in Fort Collins, Colorado. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Democratic state lawmakers may consider changes to a state law requiring companies to include a salary range in any job posting. Recent reports that out-of-state employers are excluding Coloradans from remote work because of the provision have drawn national attention. And it's not clear yet how lawmakers might intend to respond to the pushback. To get a sense of what's going on, Henry Zimmerman spoke with Tamara Chung, who covers business and the economy for the Colorado Sun. Let's start with a refresher on what the 2019 Equal Pay Act was intended to do. It was really to address sort of the inequity of women in the same jobs or people of color in the same jobs when it comes to things like salary and benefits. I actually covered it back then in 2019. And the sponsors of the bill, you know, there were a lot of folks who came out to testify on behalf of the bill. And, and some folks said, you know, they, f- they found out their male counterparts were making significantly more than they were. And it, it kind of put them, you know, they, they didn't know where they stood. And that was kind of what this issue is addressing, you know, to sort of put everyone on an even playing field. And, and it's not just newcomers to a company, but existing employees. So when a job is posted, It now needs to be posted to the whole company, to all the employees, with a sort of pay or salary range. So people in the same job know exactly how much the job pays and whether they want to move up or, you know, maybe they're not interested in in that sort of skill set or maybe talk to their employer about, you know, why aren't they making that much as as this new job? Those were the intentions of the bill. And uh, as we've talked about briefly already, it's kind of turned out to be detrimental to folks in Colorado who are looking for remote work. Tell us about what's happening. Definitely the unintended consequence is that a lot of employers who aren't based in Colorado, they they must have heard about this law and their HR department has taken care of it by specifically excluding Coloradans. So some of these job postings say, you know, remote worker needed for such and such a job. This job's open to all states or people in all states except Colorado. You know, it, it just specifically excludes people in Colorado. This affects, well, a lot of out-of-state employers, but I have been also finding some in-state employers and the business community, it, it just feels like there's a lot of um, ambiguity with the law. And that's one reason they're, sh- they're sharing with me. The implementation of this law that we're talking about began January 1st. When did people become aware that companies were doing this? I think it just started last month. So 
I wrote about this bill going into effect January 1st, pretty straightforward stories and stuff like that. I remember even talking to some HR people probably in February, maybe even March. And like this one expert mentioned that she was at this seminar and talking about this new law among HR employees and maybe like three out of 50 people knew about the law. So at that point, it seems like these laws were just sinking in. And then fast forward, you know, a month or two. And I think, well, a lot of this started with someone posting it on a Reddit thread saying, you know, this, this job is excluding people in Colorado. And, you know, that affects me because I'm in Colorado. And then, and I can tell you the story about how we are learning more and more about it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. There's actually a software engineer. His name is Aaron Batillo, and he is in Commerce City. And he has a job and he, you know, he, I think he works a lot from home, but when he saw this Reddit thread, he actually decided, you know what, I'm going to see this for myself. And he started tracking down companies that were doing this in their job postings. And he spent a day programming a system and putting his website online called coloradoexcluded.com, where he just started tracking job listings that excluded Coloradans. So when I first heard about it, there were, you know, a couple dozen companies on there. Let's see, now we're about a week and a half ago, there were about 60. Now there's 110. And that involves, you know, more than 200 jobs that exclude Coloradans. And that puts him in a really interesting place in all of this story. Has he heard from any of the companies that he's put on the website? When I last talked to him, which was just last week, he said he heard from one company. And this company sort of just told him, we've come up with our own policy to look at this inequity and left it there. I mean, he, Aaron doesn't want to be political about it. He just wants to publicize it and and just put it out there. People can make their own judgments about whether, why or not companies are doing this. And I can add, you know, I have reached out to several companies and several companies have said no comment, you know, or we're not commenting at this point. Lots of off the record non-quotes, but people just saying, you know, they're onerous regulations. They're requiring us to do something else. The Colorado Sun has spoken to lawmakers who created this legislation. What can you tell us about where the lawmakers are at in all this and maybe remedying some of the unintended consequences we're talking about? This is definitely on their radar. State Rep Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez was one of the co-sponsors of the bill, and she was at our Colorado Sun legislative session wrap up. And that question was asked of her. She told us that she's sort of disappointed in these companies that they're doing these tactics. But, you know, this is the state law and she is reaching out to her fellow co-sponsors to discuss what's next. You know, it could be a case where they ask the federal cohorts in in Congress to help out and and to remedy this. So that that's being done on that level. Nothing further on that, but you know, this is all still pretty new. I know that different groups like I've spoken to the Colorado Technology Association and and they feel like, you know, we want to be part of the conversation. Please um, talk to us. So so hopefully this is creating that environment where the different groups who want to do something about pay equity in in our state, hopefully they can come together and figure out something that's less troublesome for maybe the business community. But we'll see. Yeah, something to watch. 
Tamara Chung covers tech and the economy for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to her reporting on what we talked about today at KUNC.org. Tamara, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. You may have heard the term critical race theory in the news a lot lately. It's an academic concept that examines the impact of systemic racism on the laws and institutions of the U.S. Several states are considering bans on the study, driven by opponents who claim that teaching it promotes divisiveness. It's generally taught at the university level, but recently it's become a flashpoint at K-12 schools, even though it isn't part of the curriculum for most of them. And the debate came to Colorado last week when dozens turned out to the final Cherry Creek School Board meeting of the year to talk about the controversy. Karina Julig is an education reporter at the Aurora Sentinel and was covering that meeting. She joins us now. Karina, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. I know you cover a lot of school board meetings. You listened into the Cherry Creek School Board meeting last Wednesday night. Did you have any knowledge that this idea of critical race theory would be discussed? We had been told by a couple of people that there might be some conversation about it. You know, some parents from a district arriving to share their feelings. But yeah, beforehand, we really had no idea of the scope of that, there ended up being almost 100 people signed up for public comment, which I think is almost 10 times more than the previous high number of speakers I covered in the board meeting. Well, who was it who came out to speak and what kind of things did they bring up? It was a real mix of people. You know, there were a couple of people at the beginning who, you know, spoke about the dangers of critical race theory and kind of voiced concerns with the way that that this the district was approaching uh, education about history and about diversity in the classroom. But actually, the majority of people who came were pushing back against the anti-critical race theory discussion that's been kind of sweeping the nation and were really kind of pushing back against, you know, sort of the claims that talking more openly about some of the dark parts about U.S. history were divisive. And it really was kind of a mix of, you know, parents and teachers and a couple of students. But many of the people who spoke identified themselves as people of color who were alumni of the district. And they really felt like when they were students, they did not feel supported and did not feel like the district had done a super great job of um, making all students feel supported and were really there because they wanted better for today's district students. Knowing that the topic was not even on the board's agenda before the meeting, why do you think it was such a hot topic on Wednesday? I mean, it really seems like, you know, because this has become such a big topic of national conversation, it's really starting to seep into the local level from that. One of the agenda items was a presentation about how the district is approaching complying with a 2019 law passed by the Colorado legislature that requires inclusion of minorities in teaching about U.S. history and civics. Even during that presentation, district staff you know, went out of their way to be clear that the district does not actually use critical race theory. Um, it's not a curriculum. It's not even anything that you know would probably be taught in any K-12 school. So this very much seems driven by you know, not anything going on specifically in Cherry Creek, but more on the conversation about education taking place at the national level. So it'll be interesting to see if 
that continues and you know for how long this focus on critical race theory lasts is challenging to predict i think it really is and especially since i think you you mentioned it's not really something that would even be included necessarily in a K-12 curriculum. It's more focused on adults. Are there plans to include this at Cherry Creek? There are not plans to, you know, teach critical race theory in any form. However, the district has, um, you know, been having a lot of conversations over the past year about wanting to, you know, make the district more equitable, wanting to make sure that all students, you know, regardless of race or class or any other issue, all students have, you know, the same access to education and the same ability to succeed. This is actually the very first board meeting that the new superintendent was present at, and he's voiced, you know, equity as being one of his key focuses going forward. Karina Julig is an education reporter at the Aurora Sentinel. Karina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. On tomorrow's show, we'll discuss new legislation that will get rid of almost all fees and costs for young people going through the juvenile court system. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.